All right, so the other the other Supreme Court, court case we're going to discuss is the Kennedy versus uh, Bremerton. So the case is Joseph Kennedy, who claimed that the school district violated his religious freedom by telling him he couldn't pray publicly after football games. The coach was asked to stop to pray uh, and only to be fired from the school district after he failed to, to meet their request. Um, and he claimed it, it violated his First Amendment rights. So I think the first and most pressing question is, um, would you cast Kirk Cameron or Dean Cain as Joseph Kennedy in the movie you know is going to be made by a Christian production <laughs> Wait, now company? It's a, yeah. <laughs> uh, let me think about that. Yeah. Uh. Welcome to the CBF Podcast Conversation. We know that conversations matter. So each week we are grinding through the critical research to bring you the best stories and resources of people doing groundbreaking and innovative work in renewing God's world. I'm Andy Hale, your CBF Podcast host. And this year we're celebrating our seventh year of the podcast, bringing you even better interviews worth your time, attention, and collaboration. These episodes are not intended for you to listen to an island unto yourself. Get online, share your insights, thoughts, and feedback from the podcast with us on CBF's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. We also want you to join the CBF podcast community through our CBF podcast listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. We see you, Pasadena, California, Louisville, Kentucky, Beaverton, Oregon, and Frankfurt, Germany. First-time listeners and long-time listeners, we are grateful you are here for the conversation. We want to give a special shout-out to some of our listener supporters, including Caroline Bell, Trip Hawthorne, Cindy Foldenlore, Bill Johnson, Carson Fushi, Ralph Stocks, and that generous anonymous donor that keeps giving in honor of CBF Grump. And before we move on, we want to give a word of gratitude to our annual sponsors, including Central Seminary, the CBF Church Benefits, and the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. This podcast is presented to you by Central Seminary a historic Baptist seminary founded in Kansas that now is diverse, cross-cultural, and ecumenical with a significant global footprint. Leading with the values of community, empathy, growth, and tenacity, Central Seminary equips students with the theological knowledge, spiritual insight, and practical skills needed to lead in an ever-changing world. We cultivate an inclusive, multi-language community of reflection where critical thinking and discernment are welcomed and encouraged. Central offers numerous graduate degrees and certificates, including Doctorate of Ministry in Creative Leadership, Master of Arts in Counseling, Certificates in Chaplaincy Studies, and Peace and Justice Ministries, and much more. Most programs are offered fully online. To learn more, visit cbts.edu or search for Central Seminary Kansas City. Our guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is Holly Holman. She is the general counsel and associate executive director for Baptist Joint Committee. Holly, thank you for joining the conversation. Yeah, glad to be here, Andy. All right, before we get to the uh, absolute role the Supreme Court has been on recently <laughs> with all their decisions. One thing to call it. Uh, you know, I, I, I talked to Amanda about this when we had her on the podcast a year ago, but uh, I, I just would love to hear your perspective of the front row seat y'all had for the January 6th in, insurrection. You know, for not many people know this, yeah. y'all's office is, right. you know, has a front row seat right. to the to the U.S. Capitol. So what was that experience like? I know maybe the office got closed down that day, but mm -hmm. y'all being that close in that community, what was that experience uh, like for you? Yeah, 
I thank you for asking that because it, it was it was intense and uh, visceral and horrifying. I was watching it happen in real time at home because of the pandemic. We were working from home. I was in contact with Amanda right away, kind of in, in shock. Um, actually, I think I was preparing for a, a a call with. Actually, it was it was somebody. It was a, a White House related call <laughs> when it happened, um, and we kind of got together and after it, and it was kind of shocking that we could talk about anything other than what was going on but you know there's nothing we could do but watching uh people even just kind of breach the barrier was shocking because we know um living and working around the capital how precious that space is and how you know beautiful it is is sort of you know, kind of park shared space at the same time highly protected very much it, there are places you can't go and you can't cross and so it was um it was you know a horrifying experience to see um, you know, that crowd being sort of revved up and unleashed and to see, you know, the, the pressure and horror for the Capitol Police that work so hard to keep it safe. You know, yeah. So it was, yeah, it's something I still think about when I see the Capitol. You know, you think about it a lot. And yeah. so I, I, it's, it's, we don't have the luxury or that people in other parts of the country have to just not think about that, to kind of put that, that day aside and, and minimize it somehow. When you actually watched it, and you know something about the Capitol, it sticks with you and how you we really should work hard to make sure nothing like that could happen again. Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, you're a citizen of Washington, D.C. You're an active participant in, in a business that's there. I imagine it feels like a sense of the city has been wounded. You know, yeah. so how do you feel as far as like y'all's work and your collaboration? Is there a sense of healing that's taking place from that? Or do you feel like people yeah. are still on edge as a result of it? I, I think... Uh, no, I, I can't say, I, I think, you know, we're past January 6th, you know, order was restored, but the threat is still there. Yeah. So I think people walk around knowing that all the time. Mm -hmm. um, and so you don't, uh, you don't, you know, focus on it all the time, but you are aware of the, um, I guess just, you know, that things can go wrong and that we have to work hard to make sure that they don't, to make sure that we're safe and do the best we can to have respectful discourse, knowing that there are a lot of um, people who are, um, you know, would be violent in their in their views so yeah it's tough well you know at the same time these recent rulings of the supreme court has has drawn a crowd if you will um some of those we'll talk about some of those we won't um but uh, the supreme court uh, session started in, in june runs through july is that right uh well they started the term starts in october and then, oh, okay. they, then they start re they release all the decisions usually by the end of june okay all right so the, the decisions they're making yeah. start you know starting now so so you know I mean, this is why we have you here. You educate me on all these things. So, but they're making several landmark rulings that directly connect to religious liberty issues. So the first one we'll talk about is uh, Carson v. Macon. Yeah. This uh, case came out of Maine in which uh, the state withheld available tuition assistance payments uh, to parents who live in school districts but wanted to use state-funded vouchers for their child's education at a religious uh, school. Is that is that kind of... Yeah. Yeah, that's that's basically it. Yeah. Yeah. The, la yeah. the layman's way of Ma trying yeah. to summarize it. Yes, <laughs> Maine is a, is an unusual state because it's so rural. So they don't in, they have all these school districts, but all the school districts don't have a school. Mm -hmm. So in a, in a few of the school districts, um, instead of contracting with another neighboring district in a public school or an author, uh, approved private school, there's a small part of the program where it, it's a, 
voucher-like. It's not like a full choice school choice program um, where you can just do anything, but but it uh, it was not designed to do that. It was really designed to provide public education for families in these really rural areas. But it, it did operate. They called it a tuition assistance program. Okay. Um, and and the state said you could use it at, at private schools that were approved, that were accredited, but they had a ban on sectarian schools, basically religious schools, because we know the public, uh, public education funds public secular education, education across the board, but does not fund you know, private education. Basically, these are like Bible schools, mm. teaching the kind of things that you know, uh, we're used to learning in churches, um, how to be a good disciple, what the Bible says about um, you know, how to be a good Christian, you know, what do, how do you think about your faith. Um, and that's not what public schools typically, they don't teach, they can't teach. Um, but in this case, and so in this case, Maine um, precluded any of these religious schools from the program. So, you know, the Supreme Court sided with Carson, which was a, a parent yes. uh, in the ruling, and the state must allow these government-funded tuition assistance to be used for uh, religious schools. How does this affect public funding toward other schools across the country, yeah. the, you know, other religious schools moving forward? How, how do you imagine this is going to affect some of those decisions? So just to be really clear about what we were saying, so that uh, Maine had not intended to create a, a choice program. Yeah. It intended just for an alternate way of providing a public education. But you're correct that the court sided with the parents and said um, that that they should be able to have that same tuition assistance if 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 this pay, the state was going to pay for private schools, it had to pay for also these private religious schools. So I think what the court tells us and how it affects other states is that be careful, don't accidentally create a choice program where you're going to end up funding private religious education. Basically, that's it. The court didn't say anything that um, undercuts states and local governments that are dedicated to public education and fund only public education and don't have any kind of programs that subsidize private education. If you, if, if you have a program that can be seen as subsidizing private education, which is how the court saw the Maine program, even though that's not what Maine intended, then um, you will also have to include in that uh, private religious education. And the idea is that it's the parents making those choices and not the state itself being um, involved in providing a religious education. Yeah. So, I mean, one particular angle of it is you could look at it almost as, you know, taxpayer aid potentially funding these institutions, and, and which raises all sorts of kind of challenges. So, um, you know, what are the implications of these religious institutions, again, with taxpayer aid, um, by the nature of living out their beliefs, discriminating against other people, you know, such as a, a person of color at a private school started as the white community's response to um, desegregation or infringement on the rights of an LGBTQ student or um, not allowing entry of a student because of their uh, religious preference that doesn't match up with the school. So what, what, I mean, what are some of the implications around this decision as it comes to the ability for a religious institution to discriminate against the rights mm -hmm. of students based on receiving taxpayer funding, I guess, is, mm -hmm. for lack of better terms. Well, I think what you're getting at, Andy, is that, that uh, private schools, and particularly private religious schools, uh, will have different admission standards, different curriculum standards, different hiring standards. And um, while the law generally allows religious institutions to have a lot of exemptions so that they can promote their, their faith, 
then the question arises, um, can they still do that once they're getting tax dollars, right? Once there's a greater public interest in what goes on in those schools when all the public is paying for that. And we're not sure yet you know, if, if a lot of the regulations will follow. I think um, particularly on admissions, it's going to be very hard, I think, for um, programs to proceed that have restrictive admissions policies where they don't, they're not open to people of other religions or of different uh, uh, LGBTQ you know, status. Um, I think if, if they have restrictive admission standards on that, I think that uh, great political pressure will come to bear on them by taking tax dollars. Mm-hmm. And, and so we'll, we'll have to see, and, and that has not yet been decided in this case. It was, not, it was not specifically before the court in this case. Interestingly, the religious schools that the parents wanted to send their kids to in the Carson v. Macon case had not said they would accept public money because in the main case, part of the participation in, those, in that program was that you had to abide by the state's human rights law, which mm-hmm. would have some of these protections. That's fascinating. I didn't know that angle. Yeah, so we don't know. Yeah. Uh, you know, we don't know if, if later on down the line they will take the money, but they'll insist that they have that right mm-hmm. to continue to um, set their own policy based on religion and whether what this court would say about that. But those are the kinds of conflicts that are likely to, to be kind of in the next phase. So, I mean, some of this is kind of like we don't know yet on some of these cases, but kind of knowing – I mean, you're the expert in religious liberty, you know, <laughs> so, you know, it's kind of like projecting out the potential of some of these things. So h- how does this ruling potentially open the door for uh, administrations, teachers, sports coaches to, to force students to, 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 to prayers, to worship services, to religious teachings, to interpretation of beliefs on behaviors and dress and, and conduct now with, you know, in a sense, state funded or, or taxpayer funded resources uh, I mean, you know how does how does that become a religious liberty issue um, as it relates to something maybe we haven't had before which is state funded things or taxpayer funded things going towards these institutions I, well I think we, we hit on the the big issue about what what um, regulations what strings are going to come attached to the money so that'll be one thing that could affect the schools and how they operate and what kind of education they provide um, and and that will affect of course then whether families choo- choose those um, schools I think you know I think it, it causes some conflict in that you know America has a very diverse religious population and we don't typically worry about where different people go to church or to their mosque or to synagogue because that's with their own time and their own money. But once you have government support, you feel like your tax dollars are contributing to that, you feel like you might have more to say about that. So there could be more conflict and more animosity Mm -hmm. um, among religious groups, conflicts um, uh, over that. I don't know if if there'll be any sense that the schools themselves you know, how they'll change, knowing that they're taking tax dollars. I, I don't presume that they would want to change. <laughs> <laughs> they exist for their particular reason, to, for their faith. Yeah. Well, I mean, and then the fascinating angle is, you know, you think about, okay, what if this wasn't a Christian institution that, you know, these parents are providing for? How would how would the the public feel about any other religious groups? Or more importantly, how would evangelical Christians, you know, now be, you know, caring about whether a, 
a Muslim school was it, mm-hmm. or a Jewish school, mm-hmm. you know, is to, to raise these things. Is it the same conversation? Yeah. Um, you know, the rule has to be the same on what the court held, is that you can't exclude, a, um, if you're going to subsidize private education, you'd have to, sub, you, you cannot exclude private religious education. And so that would clearly um, work across the board. Now, we know in our country, most of those schools right now are Christian schools, um, but that's, that's not going to be true forever, and that's not true everywhere. Yeah. This podcast is presented to you by CBF Church Benefits. At CBB, your benefits are our ministry. For 25 years, CBF Church Benefits has proudly served the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, providing retirement benefits and insurance services for CBF-affiliated church ministries and staff, along with CBF field personnel in Atlanta and around the world. CBB helps simplify the administrative burdens of your retirement plan, allowing you and your ministry staff to focus on your ministry. CBB can also help you maintain your overall benefit package, including life and disability benefit and international medical insurance for international missions. Through generous philanthropic support, CBF Church Benefits recently launched the Financial Wellness Initiative. This new initiative offers ministers the opportunity to receive financial relief grants, financial education experience, and financial planning services. Please visit CBF Church Benefits website at churchbenefits.org to learn more about CBB, our benefits, and the financial wellness opportunities designed to help you thrive in your mission and ministry. Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. Yes, it's fascinating. So uh, oftentimes school codes and inclusion requirements are not forced upon religious um, schools, you know, because it's not public, you know, they don't have to have the same types of building regulations, things like that. So it'd be fascinating to see also in the development of this, how those codes that often have been skirted or kind of get grandfathered in as it affects people, you know, needing a building to be ready for somebody with persons of disabilities or, or neurodiverse folks of how that affects them. But why, why does or does not this case set an unhealthy precedent for future separation of religion and state in regards to, to funding and government regulations? Well, it's a, it's a problematic decision um, the, in, how the, in how the court ruled and what the court said in that the court is not allowing Maine to distinguish between um, private secular education and religious education. Um, the real problem is that the court is seeing that uh, different treatment as discrimination against religion as opposed to like, religion is different. It's fundamentally different from the kind of public education that schools provide. So what what I'm concerned about is the deteriorating understanding of religion's special place in our society and pluralism and how we all are equal citizens without regard to religion 
and that's um, been protected by the government staying out of religious affairs. So I, what I'm concerned about is um, a ruling that treats religion like all other factors um, or other endeavors. Um, religion will lose. Uh, religion will get watered down as political pressure comes to bear on these religious institutions. Um, you know, p people won't understand and might be more hostile toward each other for for having uh, different opinions mm -hmm. when their tax dollars are involved. So I think that there's just a um, something missing in the courts thinking about these cases. It's going to eventually harm religion. Right now, it looks it looks good for those people who want the money. They want religion. They think religion's going to be you know, treated better because they're going to get money. They think they've been treated poorly because they weren't getting money. Um, but but what they're not seeing is that religion is fundamentally different, and that's why the founders, um, the framers of the Constitution, uh, you know, have have wrote that the First Amendment and selected it for special treatment. All right. So the other the other Supreme Court case we're going to discuss is the Kennedy versus uh, Brimperton. So the case is Joseph Kennedy, who claimed that the school district violated his religious freedom by telling him he couldn't pray publicly after football games. The coach was asked to stop to pray uh, and only to be fired from the school district after he failed to, to meet their request. Um, and he claimed it, it violated his First Amendment rights to, to practice religion. Is that kind yeah, of that's kind of how it's been portrayed. It's yeah. a, it's kind of like that, but but not not so much. He wasn't fired. He actually was put on paid administrative leave in this in this kind of saga as the district was working with him and trying to say, look, we need to, um, as a public school, we need to make sure that we um, are in compliance with the First Amendment and the school can't be leading kids, football players, in religious exercises. So, hey, Coach Kennedy, uh, we understand that you've been praying in the locker room and on the field with, with students and with the opposing team. you got to stop that. Um, the school was not intending to tell him that he could never personally, you know, be thankful for his blessings and for the team and pray in his personal capacity. Um, so the school was working with Coach Kennedy through this, like, don't do this, don't do this. And Coach Kennedy kept persisting that, okay, I won't pray with the students, but I still, it's important to me to pray on the 50-yard line after the game. And as, uh, you know, eventually the, his, when his contract ran out, it was not renewed. Okay. Um, and there had been, you know, there had been all kind of media attention. There had been kind of a circus in the school, as he, as he said, I think I'm going to get fired for praying. Um, so it was really unfortunate because the rules on religion in the public schools have been set for decades. Mm -hmm. Andy, it's not that hard. Yeah. You know, your child can go to a public school and they can they can pray before their math test quietly. They can get get together with their friends during a free period um, during school or before or after school to pray. Um, you know, teachers might be bowing their heads before lunch or they can be they might be praying before or after a game on their own. But this, the teachers, the school itself does not advance religion, does not lead kids in religious exercises. And teachers and coaches are the school. They are government officials acting in official capacity. So those rules have been pretty set. So it was unfortunate that the court took this case and um, was obviously sympathetic toward Coach Kennedy. Um, you know, we just got this decision, so we're still kind of looking through it and figuring out what it means. But I think read in the best light is that, you know, Teachers in their personal capacity, of course, um, you know, have religious perspectives and some religious rights, but they cannot coerce uh, students in during. They can't coerce students, and that that should be clear in this decision. You know, um, we're sorry that this court felt it necessary to take this case because it was it wasn't necessary, and that it would you know raise any questions about those school prayer cases. Um, but I would argue that. Um, 
schools need to continue and can continue, should continue, must continue to protect students from unwanted, coercive religious pressure from teachers because that's not what this is about. So I think the first and most pressing question is, um, would you cast Kirk Cameron or Dean Cain as Joseph Kennedy in the movie you know is going to be made by a Christian production <laughs> Wait, now company? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, let me think about that. Yeah. Uh. Yeah. Um, so take us a little deeper, um, and you're doing a little bit of this, uh, but why both sides of this, uh, why it's a both sides case around religious liberty, yeah. right? You know, yeah. so uh, looking at it from the angle of, you know, a case of religious liberty for this, this teacher, coach, yeah. Um, and, and religious liberty case on the other side, which is what you were talking about, which we can't co- coerce students yeah. into to religious practices at, at, at a yeah. publicly funded institution. Yeah, it's really important. And, and I think that we're going to have to work harder to reiterate it. Again, the, I think the principles have long been in the law and there have been common sense guidelines that say, uh, you know, the, the First Amendment that, that has a free exercise clause and a no establishment clause is for the protection of religious freedom. Um, but that no establishment part, the part that says the government won't lead in exercises, won't act religiously, that actually works with free exercise and protects people. So in the context of the public schools, that means that the government, the school itself, that's the acting through the teachers, won't engage in religious exercises. Meanwhile, the free exercise clause protects individual rights. Mm. So. Uh, the public schools are actually a good place to understand how free exercise and no establishment work together. And we're just concerned that this case, um, the court did not give appropriate attention to those establishment clause values. They didn't really understand that, like, when you're the football coach, my kids play basketball, but it's the same thing. You want to please the coach. When your coach does something, you know, even if, if it's personal and religious, but in front of you, at a time when the, he's in charge of you, you're going to feel the pressure to go along. And that's where a much better rule would be to say, no, the school was totally in within its rights to tell Coach Kennedy, no, you know, obviously you're a Christian, that's great, we're happy for your service and happy for your, whatever you, your religious beliefs are, but you, you have to express them and exercise them in a way that is outside your official duties. And you were officially on the clock you know, lights are still on, crowd's still there right after the game on the 50-yard line. That would have been a better ruling. It's not what the court held. Um, and, and so we're kind of stuck with um, reminding people that, that while individual religious liberty is protected, including that of teachers, um, the school itself still cannot um, advance religion in ways that pressure, cannot advance religion, cannot coerce students into participating. The court, in its decision, even though uh, it chose very selective facts, late facts, um, the facts that the majority ruled on were the, the, assumed that the coach was praying alone, quietly, not with the players. Yeah. I just going back to you know this is going to get made into a movie you know it's just, it's just bound I think it was to inspired by a movie actually I think that's part of Coach Kennedy's stories he was yeah. watching TV one night and you know was inspired to to uh, you know take his faith through through fo- football to kind of evangelize and yeah, uh, yeah we'll see uh, what's the implications of this ruling as it relates to other government employees praying at other government sanctioned uh, you know events you know do you do you imagine this is setting a precedent yeah and um, a turn of how people interpret this kind of thing I think it's concerning um, again 
should not be a problem for individuals to pray in their private capacity and to be very religious and have lots of uh, religious practices and also to serve in a government position. You just, you just make sure that you don't use your government position uh, to advance your faith. Um, that's, that's what the Establishment Clause prohibits, while the Free Exercise Clause protects your right to be religious and to exercise your faith. It should not protect your, it should not protect your use of uh, the government tax dollars, you know, uh, government-owned structures or places to promote your religion or affect the rights of others. Hmm. So I think, you know, um, we'll have to see how, how this goes, but clearly this Supreme Court is less concerned with those Establishment Clause values than um, past, past courts have been. Yeah. What do you think about it? It opens the door for all sorts of, I mean, things. You just think about, you know, now a, a government employee. I mean, what do you have somebody praying inflammatory prayers, you know, yeah. at government-sanctioned yeah. events and uh, yeah. what that means? Of course, for those that side on and have the worldview of, you know, we need to bring prayer back in schools, like, well, let them say what they want to say. It's, you know, it's their religious beliefs. But it, it certainly is the infringement on the rights of other people, you know, who don't want to... Um, coerced or uh, forced into any kind of experience like that. I wonder... And you're right, uh, back to your, your your thinking about this blockbuster movie here, this, I don't know, more, it's probably more a Lifetime movie, right? Yeah, I don't think it's yeah. going to be a blockbuster. Yeah, more, we, more a Lifetime, maybe an after-school special. It's a very, <laughs> it's a very you're thinking a very kind, a kind-hearted, yeah. um, you know, Christian, nice, you know, bring the kids along and all. But you're right to point out, as you started, this conversation earlier with many um, harmful expressions of religion, religion that where you'd have a lot of people agree that could be very damaging and something that we certainly would disagree with and we would want to fight against. But um, yeah, that's, that's what you're doing. You're opening the door to having more people be subject to individuals, um, religious expressions that they very much disagree with, but that now might be brought into the, the more the government sphere. Yeah. You raised an important question. I feel like I need to ask, which is, who would play you in a Lifetime movie? Who would play me? Yeah, who would who or wait, wait. I'd have to be. I would have to get to represent. I'd have to. I'd have to shove out some of the other attorneys to get to represent the school district. <laughs> I guess. I don't. Yeah. Know. <laughs> I don't know who that would. Um, be. You know, this isn't around this case, but you know, at least in in my lifetime, I don't feel like the religious values of the members of the court have been so prevalent as they are now um, or seem to be um, weighing in on some of the decisions that are being made. But maybe I'm, I'm just kind of miscuing just kind of my perspective of, of where the members of the court have been in, in my lifetime. But what are your thoughts around, you know, kind of the religious persuasion of members of the court right now as, as it comes to some of these decisions that are, revolve around religious liberty? Hmm. I, I don't know. I mean, the court clearly, in writing its opinions, is not you know tries to frame things in in clear legal ways. And they, as, as much as I disagree with their uh, the majority's approach, um, it is you know it it typically would have some logic from their perspective. Um, and it's hard to it's hard to say how much their individual religious perspective weighs in. In the past, um, you know we've had there have been members of the court 
you know, of, say, say of Catholic persuasion that uh, different Catholics coming out different ways. And then now, you know, with, with more Catholics on the court, there's a lot of attention to that. And people wonder, is that, <clears throat> is that what's driving this court? <clears throat> it's hard to argue. It's hard to, it's hard to say. Um, this court, what I can say is that this court is very interested in religion. It's taking more cases involving religion and the cases are all tending to come out one way. And that is in favor of the side that is perceived by the court as being pro-religion. I say perceived because we know um, often taking a strong stance in support of the Establishment Clause, protecting against government advancement of religion, we think is very pro-religion. It's good for religion and has, has served our country very well. Um, so I think, that's a, I think that's a hard question, Andy, to know to what extent individuals on the court, their, their religious perspective is influencing their decision. Although I do think it's fair to say that there is a stream um, in the court that tends to think that any government restraint um, to, on, on religious matters is hostility toward religion. And that's certainly at odds with um, our country's history and the the forming the formation of the of the First Amendment, as well as how uh, religion has flourished in our country. So obviously, um, the Supreme Court's rulings has been in the headlines. But um, looking at other work y'all are doing right now, what what other uh, piece of legislation? What other um, policies are, are y'all invested in right now that you would want our audience to be aware of as it relates to religious liberty? Yeah. Well, um, one of the biggest uh, projects that we have right now that we've been spending a lot of time on is our Christians Against Christian Nationalism project. And I'm, I imagine you all have talked about that sometime on the podcast. Yeah. Amanda probably has this, a guest here before. Um, <clears throat> and I think that that project is getting more attention. People are seeing that more as as they're waking up to this uh, new reality on the court and saying, okay, this court doesn't care as much about no establishment. They seem really keen on protecting Christian rights out in the public square, um, which they should be, but, but they don't seem so uh, careful or concerned with preventing government from advancing religion. And what does that mean? And what are the implications of that? And, you know, it basically kind of asks the, makes us ask the question, what kind of country are we? And what do we think about religion and religious liberty. And so I think uh, we will continue to invest in our Christians Against Christian Nationalism project, continue to educate people to see the threats. Um, you know, if you, if you diminish our country's interest and commitment to religious liberty, what replaces it? And, um, you know, there's a lot of concern that right now you're seeing a rise of this kind of Christian nationalism thinking that's replacing good religious liberty thinking. Hmm. Um, so folks get connected, uh, they can visit bjconline.org. Uh, what kind of resources would you want to highlight that, that y'all have know, out there? It's, it's really a great website. Our communications team does a terrific job. There's, there's um, whole pages on what's going on in the court, so you can find out more about these decisions that we've talked about and other decisions, as well as in Congress. Um, there's, there are resources for churches to use. There's all kinds of things there. Um, links to these other projects, like the Christians Against Christian Nationalism page. So um, we'd welcome people to, to visit the website, reach out to us, you know, check out our podcast, the Respecting Religion podcast that Amanda Tyler and I host, where we have in-depth conversations about some of these issues. 
yeah, and let us let us know if you have questions. That's a that's an award winning podcast, by the way. It is. Um, yeah, y'all mm-hmm. received a RCC award, so Thank congratulations you. on that. Um, well, our guest is Holly Holman. Uh, she is the general counsel and associate executive director of the Baptist Joint Committee. Uh, again, you can visit bjconline.org. Holly, it's joy talking with you. Uh, thank you for the extraordinary work uh, you are doing in pursuing religious liberty for all people. Thanks, Andy. Before we wrap up our episode, we need to tell you about one more of our annual sponsors, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. BSK is excited to once again be sponsoring CBF's upcoming General Assembly in Dallas, Texas. Stop by our booth in the exhibit hall. Join us as we honor our 2022 Addie David Award recipient at Baptist Women in Ministries Gathering or attend the workshop being led by Reverend Erica Whitaker, BSK's Associate Director for Institute for Black Studies. We'd love to connect with you at this special event. Learn more about BSK at bsk.edu. Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF Podcast on all major platforms, including iTunes, Amazon Music, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcast. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platform. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites. Again, that's Central Seminary, the CBF Church Benefits, and the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. Check out cbf.net for more information about church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and much more. And, uh, oh yeah, I think we mentioned that you should uh, join the listener support community at cbf.net backslash podcast support.